Welcome back for another episode of the Happy at Work podcast with Laura, Tessa, and Michael. Each week, we have thoughtful conversations with leaders, founders, and authors about happiness at work. Tune in each Thursday for a new conversation. Enjoy the show. So welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. We are so excited to have Jessica Weiss here with us. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the Happy at Work podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I am so excited to learn about your career journey, which I know has recently culminated with a TED Talk called Happiness and Inside Job. So uh, tell us a little bit about how did you get to where you are today and and what, what did that journey look like for you? Um, so I got an MBA and I worked, um, in organizational design. So a lot of the work that I did was around transformation and specifically it was with the focus on creativity and innovation. So it was always around how can these organizations like the Johnson and Johnson's American Express, those big fortune 500, how can they start to generate more innovation and what in the culture can spur this creativity? So we would, you know, do these long ongoing projects. And as you peeled back the layers, oftentimes what I found, the heart of the question, in order to get these organizations to really be more agile and more creative, the heart of the question was always, how can I get better at my job? And then when you peeled it back once more, it was, how can I love my work more? How can I be better at my work? And when I realized that that was the heart of the question, how can we be happier at work? How can we have more enjoyment at work? That was always the stuff that like hooked me. So as I was working at this big management consulting agency, I then left and went out on my own to examine the question of how can we be happier at work and how does that impact these really large organizations? So professionally, that's how I arrived at this happiness work, happy at work, happiness just in general in life. How do we build more happiness? And then from a very personal perspective, as an undergraduate, I was lucky enough to take a class with Dr. Martin Seligman, who is the father of this entire positive psychology movement. Um, And that was the moment that I really personally became like a voracious reader of all things happiness, right? So if Oprah had a happiness expert, I was watching it. If there was a new book about happiness, I was reading it. So just from a very personal perspective, it was always stuff that was very interesting to me. So I was able to marry the two now in my work. That's excellent. And and Marty Sullivan was one of my professors. So it, it really is an honor. It's it's like learning under Dr. Freud. It's 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 really incredible. That's exactly how I felt. So I just want to take a little bit of a right turn. What what things stuck with you with Marty? You you did that uh, some time ago when you were 18 years old. It at you were were you at Penn doing that? Yeah, I was at Penn. So the one thing that really stuck with me, it's interesting that you ask, and there really was one thing that absolutely stuck with me and continues to sort of be a mantra in my brain to this very day, is he always said, we have spent all of this time studying what's wrong with people, right? We have, we have the entire study of psychology is what goes wrong. What are all the ailments? How about we flip it? We turn it on its head and we say, what's right with people? What are the things that people are doing? 
doing right? And how do we get more of that? So me, as a person who is very much about action, like for me, I'm always like, when I read something, I'm like, okay, great, super interesting. Now, what can I do? Those words really kind of like fueled me into action. Why are we looking constantly at what's wrong? And there's absolutely valid. I'm not in any way saying that that is not a valid study because absolutely it's true. But I think it is interesting to study wellness, happiness, right? How do we generate more of it? I love it. And, and just to follow up and, and to share with our, our audience members. So Marty's famous for a model called PERMA, which is an acronym that stands for positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning, and accomplishment. And according to Marty, if you, you have all of those, then you will have well-being and flourishing. So the so positive psychology has kind of moved evolved from happiness, which is sort of like a firework, happy emotion into more of a mellow one of well-being and flourishing. And I'm teaching well-being now to uh, to undergrads and grads, and I've asked them to make their own models before Mm. I taught them PERMA. And Mm. they came up with something, and I want to hear what you think about it. One of their pillars is reflection. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. What do you think of that? So what did they mean by reflection? Where were they going in terms of, was it reflection in terms of giving yourself time to kind of soak it in? Was it, tell me, just give me a little more detail. It's more like at the end of the day, looking back at your day and reflecting, what did I do? What went well? What didn't? So you could sort of harvest the learning instead of being on that treadmill of doing the same thing over and over again. Could I harvest the learning and, and change sure. my behavior for the better? So it was more of that, like like reflect, yeah. reflecting for learning for better yeah. change. Well, one of the things that I talk about in my TEDx and I talk about with my clients, and it's one of the pillars of how I say that you can create lasting and sustaining to sustainable happiness. And I think that's, we're talking about the same thing. Happiness is such a loaded word, right? People say, is it happiness? Is it joy? Is it contentment? Is it flourishing? I'm saying the long-term lasting happiness, not those feelings of giggles, even though that's an element, but I'm talking about the long-term sustainable happiness stuff. So one of the things that I talk about with my clients all the time is exactly this idea of reflection. And I call it a joy journal. And Marty talks about this also, Dr. Sullivan. And it's about at the end of the day, I think that we we all, we know that we're all predisposed to this huge negativity bias, right? We, we remember all the bad stuff. We stew, we stew and ruminate on the bad stuff. So what I like to tell my clients to do is at the end of the day, keep a joy journal, write down three things that made you happy that day, because I think there's also a predisposition to journal bad stuff, right? So let's journal some good stuff. And the reason that I say that is it's a great way to overcome the negativity bias. It's a great way to re-experience the good stuff that happened to you. It's a great way to remember the good stuff that happens to you. I think a joy journal is brilliant. So I love the reflection pillar. I'm all for it. That's wonderful. And you mentioned your TEDx. So in your TEDx, you talk about some of the surprising habits of people who actually like their job and find joy in their job. So can you talk about some of those habits that you might reflect on in your in your TED Talk? 
Sure. So I say in the TEDx, and I think that this is a great way to start when we think about happiness at work. I always say there are two things that people need in their work before we can even talk about happiness habits and strategies and tools and all that stuff. There are two things that every job needs to have. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you are flying people to the moon or doing something else. It doesn't matter. It needs to have these two things. So the first thing is that you need to feel that there's fairness and transparency in how you got your job. Right. And you need to feel that the job is deserved, that whatever you did, you merit this job. Now, that can be very personal, right, that you did a great job, you got a promotion, but it also comes into play within an organization. Promotions can't be arbitrary. People need to feel that things are fair. So that's the first kind of obstacle that you need to get to. And the second one is people need to feel that they are doing something in their job that other people cannot do for themselves. Whatever it is, it does not matter, but you are providing some service that they cannot do for themselves. So those are the two very initial uh, hurdles that we need to get through. So I just want to follow up on that because I, first of all, I was a marketing professor at Halt um, for six years. And so value is everything. How do you bring value to other people? How do you create value, the value proposition? So your second piece, I feel like I I completely connect with. The first one, I'm curious though, what you think about imposter syndrome, because even in my own career, if I reflect, you know, I've always kind of felt like, am I qualified? Can I say I can do this? Am I boasting too much? You know, which I'm sure has a little bit to do with my gender and my experience as a Gen X woman coming up through the corporate world and uh, not always feeling 100% confident or secure, but also, like, how do you deal with that person who who may feel like, oh, my gosh, I, I am I ready for this promotion? Do I feel like I deserve this when they absolutely do, but they just don't believe in themselves so much? How, how would you address that? Yeah. So I think the first thing that we need to understand about imposter syndrome is that it is a disease or a condition, right, that afflicts everybody across the board. So it's not a unique feeling. Everybody has that feeling of, oh my God, I cannot do this whenever they are doing anything new. So I feel like if we really start to understand those feelings of insecurity and questioning our value and our worth, and we really understand it as a human condition issue, I think it really changes the focus on imposter syndrome. But I think that it's something that we have to accept as a reality every time we're pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone. And I don't think, to me, whether you deserve your job is very different than those like inner chatter voices that we have, right? You, If you can point to relatively objective measures as to why you deserve your job, then we've hit that first hurdle. Imposter syndrome, we've got lots of tools to deal with that. <laughs> On to the um, imposter syndrome. <clears throat> In my postgraduate course this semester, it's the last class. For about half of them, it's the last class before they graduate and go off into the real world. And I was talking to them yesterday and there's a lot of them are super anxious and yeah. most of them are not American. So they have the, the visa to deal with, the OPT, sure. uh, where am I living? Where's that going to be? I have no experience. And it's the defaulting to all the negativity. And I'm curious if, if you have a reframe to suggest for them, because what, what they're experiencing is completely normal. And, and they went for it. They know that when you go to graduate school, you're going to graduate and you're going to be here. And here they are. And I'm curious if you have any reframes for them. 
Well, I don't have a reframe, but I do have an effective tool for dealing with it. And I got it from Ethan Cross, who wrote a great book called Chatter. And what he says to do, and I find this incredibly effective and I use it in my own life, to be perfectly frank. So he says, whenever you have those inner voices in your head that are telling you about how terrible you are, how worthless you are, how none of it is going to ever work out ever again. And oh my God, why did they even pick you for this? What you need to do at that point is speak to those voices in the third person. Now, I'm not suggesting when you're walking down the street to have a whole conversation with yourself because that might start to perk up some um, questions about people thinking that maybe you belong in the insane asylum. But what I am saying is speak to those voices in the third person. So say something like this, Jessica, you, so for example, your students, Michael, right? Um, Jessica, you, you went through two years of graduate school. You got wonderful grades. People believed that you belonged here. You were, you gave a huge, like you participated. You've accomplished so much. You are ready to do the next thing. You need to speak to yourself in the third person. And what that does, according to Ethan Cross and according to my personal experience, is it kind of depersonalizes all of that anxiety, makes it a third person outside of yourself. So it's much easier to quiet it, to calm it, and to kind of move beyond it. I love it. So this is basically positive self-talk with self-efficacy and in that third person. I, I like the third person. I love that. The Thank third you. person part is the critical part. I love it too. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about, um, I'd love to hear more about your consulting work and what you do with clients because you know, when you think about how do you scale this? I mean, you've worked with some Fortune 500 companies, very large clients. How do you think about, or what do you tell those those workplaces that have to scale this across hundreds, thousands of employees? And what are some things that even for managers who are managing, sure. you know, teams from five to a hundred different sure. employees, how how can they scale these types of practices? So I think that anytime we're talking about change in a really large organization, we've got to boil it down to what it is that you can control, right? Because inevitably, whenever you're part of a big organization, there becomes this futility like, oh, no matter what I do, it's not going to change. But the truth of the matter is you you make the change within yourself, you make the change within your team, and then that change starts to spread like a like a contagion almost, right? So that's what I say. So, so when I deal with managers and leaders, um, I talk specifically about imp impacting your team members and how you can impact these happiness habits for your team members, who, which will then start to spread throughout the organization. And do you include anything as it relates to um, other types of practices? So uh, obviously you have a really strong positive psychology background, but how it relates to, you know, creating an inclusive team sure, or sure, innovation and creativity. Yeah. So what are some other of perhaps course. practices you bring into your work so that you, it all gets round out? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, psychological safety is a huge, right? That's, that's the umbrella that all of this falls under. So if your team doesn't have that very basic feeling of trust and psychological safety, none of this is going to work, right? Because we're talking about being in an environment where you can be free to decide 
disagree. You can be free to bring up crazy ideas and it's all going to land in a very safe place. So this idea of psychological safety and trust is absolutely tantamount. So it becomes how do you start to establish that? And a lot of that kind of overlaps with a lot of these positive psychology and happiness ideas. So for example, you want to constantly be rewarding your team, acknowledging people, sharing information, very basic things, right? That we all, when I say it, it's like, duh. But the truth is, lots of organizations never do it. So once you start to do these things, right, and start to incorporate these ideas of psychological safety, reinforced with reward, um, accomplishment, sense of progress, sharing information, pride in your work, all of those things, all of that together starts to propel the team forward. So just, uh, Jessica, I'm curious, what would you say to someone, let's say you get called into an organization to to do some of this work and you have a naysayer, someone who's like, hey, look, you know, it's work, not play. I'm giving you a paycheck to do a job. I'm not here to make sure you're happy. I'm not going to give you a trophy every day or a gold star to put on your refrigerator. What would you say to someone like that where they may want to take in some of your tools mm-hmm. based on their values? What, yeah. what would get them to say, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I see some value in this? Well, the good thing with those kind of people, and we all have those kind of people always, right? No matter where you do, no matter where you go, there's always the naysayer who thinks he's smarter or she's smarter than everybody else in the room because she's above all of this silly happiness stuff. Um, Well, there's a load of science to back all this up now, right? So, okay, you don't have to care about happiness. You don't have to be worried about, and this is really not about people's feelings at all. People's feelings are very much their own domain. This is about setting up habits and tools for laughing flourishing, exactly what you said at the beginning, Michael. So um, to those people, I would throw the science at them. So I would say people who are satisfied in their job are more productive, right? They're better problem solvers. And there are there are percentages that go with this. It's better talent retention. It's better productivity. It's less um, sick absences. It's, you know, Everything that you can kind of imagine, I would I would bring the data and the science to those people. And luckily, we now have decades of research that we can use. I think that's such an important point, Jessica. I in my um, previous experience, I, I worked with a neuroscientist out of Mass General, and we had an uh, empathy training company that she had found, and. What was interesting about the training, I mean, certainly there's lots of evidence, like you said, scientific research around the the neuroscience of empathy and the importance of it. But what she actually found was that even if you can't put yourself in the shoes of another person, even if it's hard for your imagination to go there, that if you just utilize the same skills, so if you just use the communication skills to express empathy, even if you don't feel it. Exactly. It's received as you are empathetic. And that's the most important part. So it is about, even if you don't quite buy into these things quite yet, I do think that those who are receiving on the receiving end of your attitude toward work, you know, the type of culture that you're creating, these types of practices, um, it, 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 it does work. You will see it work over time. And I certainly with the empathy training, we said it's a muscle that you have to condition yep. and over time, you, you'll start to actually feel it as well, but you kind of have to jump out of your comfort zone first to, to do that. 
Um, I agree completely. You don't necessarily need to believe it, but here's the science and the numbers to back it up. So I think that that those naysayers, they can't do anything against numbers, right? Data is inevitable. So it's okay. You don't care that your people are happy and enjoying work, but you do care that you have better team retention, more productivity, more creativity, more innovation. These are things I know you care about. So I agree with you completely, Tessa. Yeah. So if, as we, as we end, this was like the fastest, (laughs) Um, but as we come to an end, you know, for our listeners, we have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are individual contributors and are also, you know, running their own businesses and just in the grind every single day and looking for tools. What would be that one thing that a practice, a habit that they could start that you feel would make a huge difference in their lives if they started it today? So the big one is this, um, and I talk about this also in my TED in my TEDx talk, and it's around this idea of progress. And I think that um, when people work on their own, you can kind of um, lose sight of the bigger picture, right? So what I think is really helpful for both people who are solopreneurs working within an organization, working within a within a team, what I think is really really effective in terms of day to day happiness is this idea that you create a sense of progress. So in order to create a sense of progress, you need to block a certain amount of time out of your day where you're doing work that is meaningful to you. Now, nobody can tell you what this is. Nobody knows. No one even, you know, this is this is a very personal kind of thing, but you need to be able to feel that you are moving forward with something meaningful. Now, this is the kicker with it. We all need to have huge, big goals. That's very important. But the truth of the matter is we just need to feel that we are making progress towards those goals. We never even need to accomplish it. So this idea of a sense of progress is an amazing day-to-day tool in terms of building happiness and satisfaction with your work. I think that's I think that's so important because oftentimes I feel like with with your work, with your progress with your family, children, whatever the case might be, it's like you're moving through it so fast and maybe this is comes back to the reflection piece, but you move through it so fast that you you kind of aren't tracking progress and then all of a sudden you kind of look back and say, "Oh my gosh, we did so much. Exactly. Like, exactly. And there's, all pleasure. That. there's pleasure in that, right? Yeah. There, there's such satisfaction in that. So I love it. Absolutely. But it needs to be deliberate. You need to be a little bit intentional around it. Otherwise, you spend your entire day answering emails and responding to notifications and doing Slack and, you know, all the stuff that keeps us super busy, but doesn't really move us towards progress. That's a hundred percent true. Wow. Um, well, Jessica, this was amazing. Thank you. Your TED Talk Happiness and Inside Job. We'll all go to uh, TED.com and go watch yes. your TED Talk. Right. That would be amazing. I would love it. Absolutely. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. This was a great conversation. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to hear future episodes, be sure to subscribe to the Happy at Work podcast and leave us a review with your thoughts. Are you interested in speaking on a future episode or want to collaborate with us? Let us know. You can send us an email at admin at happyatworkpodcast.com. And lastly, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter for even more happiness. See you soon.